Welcome to Hillside Community Church's weekly podcast. We're glad that you've chosen to listen to this week's message and hope that it ministers to you today. Hillside's located in Keller, Texas, and if you would like to know more about us or to listen to previous recordings, please visit us at yourhillside.com. And now, this week's message. Well, if you're a guest with us, we're in the, study, in the book of Mark. Uh, we're looking at the passion of Jesus the last 12 hours of his life, really, we are now. And we're trying to understand better what that passion means. In every, every paragraph, Mark gives us, gives us some new window into that. And we've come to the trial of Jesus. He has been arrested. He has been taken to Caiaphas's house, the high priest. It's about roughly 1 o'clock in the morning. Um, and we looked at that last week, Jesus on trial. And into that trial... G, uh, Mark has sort of woven another story, and that's Peter on trial. So you kind of have two trials. Uh, Peter's is obviously just personal, a little informal, and Jesus is more of a legal, a legal one. You could call it that, I guess. But what we when when, when Mark puts two two stories together like that. It's, um, it's what we call a Markin sandwich. And it looks like this. This is the whole text. And you always, this is the middle piece. And then you have an outer story, which you see both stories introduced here. Then you have this story and this story, and they're put side by, they're put together. Sort of make a sandwich like this. So you got Peter and Jesus are both, both introduced, and what you have really contrasting and being compared is Christ's confession and Peter's denial side by side, put together by Mark in this context for a reason. So you got an inner story and an outer story, and they both sort of expand on each other. And Mark's put them together because he wants us to compare the two. Um, one of the things you see in this thing that becomes crystal clear when you look at the whole text, if you can see as much yellow as possible, is that what's the theme that Mark wants us to sort of look at together by the way he's put them together and what he emphasizes is the idea of evidence and testimony and testifying and witnesses at least seven times up here. He uses the word for witness or testimony or to testify, which is the word for martyr. And martyr is a person who tells the truth, no matter what it costs. And then down here in the second part, it's the whole theme. We could have colored the whole thing yellow because it's all about Peter testifying as well. So this is more thematic testimony, and this is more sort of specific testifying. When you put the two trials side by side, you're going to see a couple of things about witnessing, about, being a test, about, about your testimony, about how you testify in public. You'll see a couple of things, at least in my mind, about what it means uh, being a witness. And here's the two things, I think, that are here. Um, first of all, being a witness is a critical part of being a disciple. You cannot hide your association from Jesus. That's what this text is going to teach us. And then the second thing is that being a good witness, being a good witness 
is dependent on seeing Jesus as the faithful witness. Seeing him as the faithful witness will help you be a better witness. So let's just dive into this text. There's so much that, uh, and you know, when you think about Peter's denials, this is going to be a little bit different angle on that, I think, to some degree. Uh, So last week we saw that um, this trial was done in the dark, it's done at night, and that's not ever when they did trials, so it's it's an illegal trial, it's an unjust trial, more of a witch hunt. Uh, but still, even though everything about this trial is wrong, everyone is exposed for who they are. Everyone is seen uh, in the full light. The religious leaders, by their actions, it's clear they're hypocrites. Jesus, by his own confession, reveals who he is. And then Peter's denial reveals where he is. And uh, I wanted you to see uh, something. Something that happens in this, and something that happens in this that are connected. When the high priest asks Jesus if he is the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One, and Jesus responds, I am. And not only am I that, he says, but you'll see me sitting on the right hand of God, and then you'll also see me coming back in the clouds. This is what the high priest says. He says, you have heard the blasphemy. What is your verdict? And that's the word that's translated verdict, but it actually means, uh, it's actually the word for light. And it means manifest, revealed. What he's really saying is, uh, to, his, to his cohorts, everyone there who's got Jesus on trial, sort of the jury, he's saying to them, isn't it clear to you who he is? The verdict is clear because now Jesus has become clear. So Jesus was sort of in the dark, and now he has come to light. That's the idea because that's what the word means. He's been manifest, revealed, come out of the dark and into the light. Contrast that with Peter who is sitting with the guards and warming himself by the fire. And the interesting thing there is that the word for fire is actually the word light. You could use the word for fire, but what he's saying is, Peter's saying he's warming himself by the light. And the interesting thing is Jesus has come to light. Peter, by being by the fire, at least from a literary standpoint, is suggesting he needs more light. He doesn't have enough. And not only, uh, not only does he need more light, he's going to get it. But you can tell that he needs more light. Jesus has come into it. He has revealed who he is. And Peter needs to see more. He needs light. But not only does he need light, you know what this light does? It also reveals who Peter is. This light reveals who Peter is. We see that he is not quite clear about Jesus. So uh, in case you're wondering why why that's important, it's because, remember in, I don't have this up there, this morning I was thinking about this. In Mark chapter 4, remember the parables? You remember what Jesus says in chapter 4 and verse 21? He says to them, a lamp isn't brought to be put under a basket or under a bed. Is it? 
Isn't it to be placed on a lampstand? For nothing is hidden except to be revealed, and nothing concealed except to be brought to light. And he's, speak, he's speaking about the gospel, and he presents it as light. And, and until you see who Jesus really is, you don't see that light. But that light is going to become crystal clear. And that's what's happening in this text, in this light. Remember, the whole book of Mark uh, is about seeing Jesus for who he really is. And until you do, you can't follow him right. So you say, what's the best way to understand my own followership of Jesus? What do you think of him? Tell me what you think of him, and we'll have a pretty good idea of how you live. They're connected. In fact, all the way through Mark, all the discipleship texts are, are tethered to Christology. you got to understand who I am in order to follow me rightly. Otherwise, you'll just follow me at however you want to. And so I have a slide here that I want you to see on Christology and discipleship and the relationship of them. Because there's a couple of things that happen in this text that come together in these two trials. In Jesus' trial and Peter's trial. What's happening in the trial is that finally the religious leaders see who Jesus really is. Peter's going to see it too. And you can tell Peter doesn't see it well up to this point because he's, because of the way he's following. He's not doing a good job in this text. But meanwhile, Jesus comes to light. In fact, you can argue this is the theological high point in the book, who Jesus is. When we say Christology, we mean, who is Jesus? Who is he fully and really? Because these two are connected, and that's what Mark is showing us. Jesus is coming to full light, and as he comes to full light, it's clear by, that by the way Peter's following him, he doesn't have a clear view of who Jesus is. Because he would not be doing what he's doing if he saw Jesus rightly. So not only do you have the theological high point of the book, you also have the most dramatic discipleship lesson in the entire book. Maybe the most dramatic discipleship moment in all of the Gospels. Right here, crystal clear. Who's where? And so they come together, this Christology and discipleship. And no one really quite understands who Jesus is up to this point. Everyone understands Messiah, hey, God's going to send a deliverer. No one thinks it's going to be God. And no one thinks he's going to die first and suffer. No, no one is thinking that. Even in chapter 8, remember when Peter said, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah? Remember in chapter 8 when he does that? This is what Jesus says when Peter calls him the Messiah. This is what Peter says to him. Peter's not thinking this at all. Jesus says this to him. Jesus began to teach, the Son of Man must suffer. Many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and experts in the law. He's prophesying this. And it's actually happening where we are in chapter 14. He's going to be killed, and after that, three days, he's going to rise again. Now, do you remember, when Jesus said that, what did Peter do? Peter pulls him aside and begins to rebuke him. Hey, 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 hey. Keep suffering out of the equation. 
You say, oh, now we're getting somewhere in our Christology and our discipleship. If I don't understand the role of suffering here, watch it. I'm not going to understand it in my life. You see the relationship? And see, no one sees Jesus through the lens of the cross yet. And that's what we saw last week in the trial when Jesus puts those two great explosive verses together. Psalm 110 and Daniel 7. When he puts those together, he freaks those people out. That's why that high priest goes off. Oh, you have done it now. Why? Because they're finally seeing Jesus through the cross. And if you don't see him through this lens, you won't follow him correctly. And I just, and you, could, you can't possibly be a good witness. You can't possibly be a good witness. So uh, that's the missing piece, and it's been missing. And so now when you get to our text, you can see what is Peter doing? Because Peter's not only an actor in the story, he's not only one of the stories, he's also a witness. Because he's the only one of the disciples that has come anywhere close to seeing what's happening to Jesus right now. Every other one has abandoned him. Peter trying to stick to his commitment to be close to Jesus, but look how he's doing it. Look how he's doing it. Verse 54. Peter had followed, because that's what disciples do, but notice, from a distance. That's not what disciples do. So you can see Peter's really struggling. He's just like you and I. We want to follow, but we follow from a distance. They go up to the courtyard, and this is where this high priest lives. Uh, evidently, these fancy homes back then, if you had a little money, this is how your home looked. You had a top floor and looked down into a courtyard that sort of had a, that was walled in, and it had a gate, so you had a little corridor that you walked into, and you could all stand in there. And that's where all of Caiaphas's, all his servants are, and they're warming themselves by a fire. But Jesus is upstairs, and the trial's happening up here. Peter is close because he wants to hear, but you can see what Peter says, where he stands, how he says it. Everything about him reeks of, you are not a disciple. But he's following because he wants to be, but he's following from a distance. He's actually identifying with the group downstairs. So you're sort of, he's, he's neurotic. He's like us. We want to follow Jesus, but we don't want to hurt. We want to follow Jesus, but we don't want any pain. So we get Peter. He follows from a distance. And in fact, Peter's following from a distance because Mark wants you to see this really beautiful thing going on, that Peter's also a witness. Peter's peeking in because now, for the first time, because Peter decided to go ahead and come this far, even though he's half-hearted, he's still going to see something in Jesus that has not connected to him up to now. It hasn't. And until it does, Peter will never be the man God intends him to be, and we will never be the people we're supposed to be until we see it. And Peter is going to get a glimpse of it. So he's kind of a witness. Remember what Peter says? Because this is interesting. He says, uh, when, the, when the woman comes to him, this girl, the slave girl, right? She comes to him and says, uh, hey, 
She sees Peter by the fire, and because Peter is by the light, he's exposed, and she sees his face. And she goes, I know that face. That's what the light does. It exposes you. Jesus has come into the light, and now Peter is by a firelight, and it is causing her to see his face and say, I think you two are connected. You were with Jesus. And Peter literally says this, and it's, it's absolutely false, but there's a piece of truth to it, and it's the problem with discipleship. Here's the deal. I don't even understand what you're talking about. That is exactly right. Even though it's wrong. It's wrong because Peter does know Jesus. It's right because Peter does not fully understand who Jesus is or he wouldn't be following at a distance. Do you follow? So it's out of Peter's own mouth comes the reality. Peter could have literally said, you know, on one hand I know him. On another hand, I have no idea who this guy is because Peter hasn't seen him through the right lens yet, which is Mark is aching for us to see, and this trial is about to make that happen. So when you follow at a distance, you know what you are when you follow at a distance? You're very hesitant. You are fearful. You're protective of yourself. You're protective of yourself. It's a... You know what? And in fact, Peter is acting like an outsider. Because remember, in verse 68, look at what it says. Then, after he was sort of surprisingly made known by this little girl in the firelight, Peter went out. And remember how Mark has created insiders and outsiders all throughout this? If you've been in Mark, you know Mark has a theology of insiders and outsiders. And Peter now goes out and he's identifying with the outsiders. You don't know where Peter is, and it's all because he doesn't understand who Jesus is. So he has gone out because he fails, like we do, to make the connection between who Jesus is and how we're supposed to follow him. That connection isn't made, and if, it, if it's not made, you won't, you won't have the life Jesus is trying to give you. So, Peter's going to get it, and we'll get, a, we'll get a slight window into something Peter sees in this moment. Unfortunately, this is true of us too, sometimes our greatest moments of enlightenment come at our absolute greatest failure. It comes at our absolute greatest failure. And in that moment, you finally go, oh my goodness gracious. So it's a very embarrassing, very painful moment for Peter to get the revelation he needs. But getting it is the most important thing. And you'll see a glimpse of that, I think. Something I read years ago, and I've always kept it in mind, and I couldn't remember where I found it, and I hunted it down this week, about ancient Chinese theater. I always loved this thought. I couldn't remember where I first read it. Ancient Chinese theater, when they do plays, they had two levels. They had a a first floor and a a, a second, first level and a second level. And uh, what they had a lower level and an upper level. And see, that's what's happening in this trial, by the way. And that's what reminded me of it. That's what the picture that came to my head. There's a first level where Peter's playing out one story. And then there's another part of the story going on upstairs where Jesus is on trial. So you got an upper and a lower level. Now, in the Chinese theater, the lower level was the first half of the story. 
it sort of set up the crisis. You could see it brewing, like in any great movie or any great play. The first part of it is setting up the crisis. And then in the second part of the story, you see how the crisis is resolved. And so in an ancient Chinese play, you're watching both of them at the same time. You're seeing the first half of the play played out, and you're seeing the second half of the play played out at the same time. And what that allowed to do was the audience would stand up and scream to the first level players and say, don't do that, because they could see the whole story playing out. And it gave the audience participation. And as I was thinking about it, I'm going, that's exactly what I want to say to Peter. Because when you're watching Jesus finally come clean about who he is, you're going, Peter, the last thing you want to do is deny him because he really is that. That's what you're screaming. Am I screaming? I'm screaming. (laughs) You just want to scream out to Peter, Peter, if you could just see what we see that Mark showed us in this trial fully. If you could see it, you wouldn't be doing what you're doing. You kind of want to scream that out. And what's happening is Jesus is being truthful, but he's suffering for it, just as Jesus predicted. Peter is being dishonest, and he's not suffering, just as Jesus predicted. And that's sort of the irony. In verse 65, as you come out of the trial, they're beating Jesus. This, these stories are happening parallel like this. So Jesus is getting beaten and spit upon and called out and say, prophesy, prophesy. But Mark doesn't fill in the blank. They don't tell him what to prophesy in Mark. You know why? Because the prophecy is coming fulfilled in Peter. Peter gets Peter's denying Jesus, and everyone who's reading the story would say, the prophesy. The prophecy is Peter's denial, and it's coming out right here. So this is what's happening. This is really interesting before we sort of tie up the witnessing piece. I know you may be lost now. I'm a little lost too. Here's why that's important. Because what they're doing to Peter, what they're doing to Jesus in beating him, we just saw predicted in chapter 8. So they're telling him to prophesy, prophesy, but by beating him, they're fulfilling his prophecy. And by Peter denying him, they're showing that he's the prophet that he said he was. Both events happening to Jesus are proving he is who he is. Mark's giving you the window to see that that's really him, even though both of them can't see it. But Peter's denial is actually proving Jesus' innocence because it's proving he's the prophet that he said he was. That is the irony of this text, that Jesus really is who he said he is. Peter fulfills the prophecy and, and proves Jesus' claim by what he does. His denial does that. That means Peter's denial does really two things in this text. The first thing it does is give hope that Jesus is really who he says he was. Can you believe that? Wait a minute, have you ever looked at Peter's denial and go, I'll tell you what the beautiful thing about that denial was. It proved exactly that Jesus was who he said he was. That's the first thing it does. Peter's denial gives hope. 
The second thing that the denial does is it proves how absurd the denial was. Because if it actually is proving who Jesus is, then the worst thing you would want to do is deny him. Do you see that? And so on, on two levels, these things are happening. The denial is giving hope, and it's also proving it's absurd. And by the way, when you look at those two responses, um, think about this. Think about this for a second. When you find out who Jesus really is, okay, when, you, when you're looking at who he is and you're assessing who Jesus is, remember C.S. Lewis talked about this in God in the Dock. Because the response of beating him and spitting on him and just pummeling him is a response in many ways that might be more authentic. It might have more integrity in it than you and I because they really see who Jesus is. They consider it blasphemy, and their response is to beat him. Peter's is to follow half-hearted. But the only other response, according to C.S. Lewis, I mean, Jesus is either a, a Lord or he's a lunatic. I mean, he's a nutcase. If he's a nutcase, beat him to death. Run from him. You don't want anything to do with that. But if he's Lord, you want to follow him wholeheartedly. In other words, there's no middle road, but Peter's running down the middle road. When you see who Jesus really is, you can't follow him half-heartedly, or you really don't know who he is. That's why I'm saying. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says in God on the Dock. He says, there's no halfway house. The idea of Jesus being just a great guy or a great moral teacher is out of the question. In my opinion, he says, the only person who can say that sort of thing is either really God or he's a lunatic suffering from some form of delusion which undermines the whole mind of man. He's either delusional or he really is God. And if he's really God, you've got to follow him wholeheartedly. And if he isn't, then you've got to run from him. There's no middle ground in who Jesus is. There is none, and yet Peter's following a middle road. And I'll bet many in here are. Great guy, I'll do what I can for you, but I can't promise anything. That's how you see Jesus. You're a great guy. I think you've made some great promises. I'd love to have a few of those things. But uh, not at any real cost to me. That's impossible. Because he's either nuts by what he says. And then C.S. Lewis goes on to think, if you think you're a poached egg, when you are looking for a piece of toast to suit you, you may be sane, but if you think you're God, there's no chance for you. We may note in passing that he, Jesus, was never regarded as a mere moral teacher. He did not produce that effect on any people who actually met him. He produced many, like three effects. You hated him, you were terrified by him, or you adored him. But there's no trace of people who just mildly approved So he's either the center of your life or isn't. And here's what C.S. Lewis is really saying is, if you're following half-hearted, then you're not thinking. You're not thinking well about what Jesus claimed. Because if he claimed to be God, we wouldn't be half-hearted. And if we thought he was nuts, we'd run completely from him. There would be no middle ground. 
It's just... So Jesus is accused. Jesus is being accused by false witnesses, but he's telling the truth. Peter's being accused by true witnesses. They were all right in what they were accusing Peter of, but he, he lied. And so you see irony in it. You see irony in those two things, of course. But there's more than just irony. It's not just a, a great literary piece, which it is. But there's theology in it. What's the theology in this comparison? What is it we're supposed to see about Jesus that would make us a better witness? Well, Jesus doesn't get off even though he deserved to go free. He didn't deserve to be condemned. Peter, on the other hand, even though he got off, even though he didn't deserve it, he deserved to be condemned. Jesus didn't, and he got condemned. And what do you see in that? You see exactly the fulfillment of Mark chapter 10 and verse 45. Jesus would give his life a ransom for many. That's what you're seeing in the two stories. Peter's going to go free, and he didn't deserve it. That's you and me. We go free, and we didn't deserve it. Jesus deserved to go free, but he got condemned for you and me. I mean, just at the Lord's Supper, what did, he say to, what did he say to the disciples? When you take communion, you know what he's saying? He's saying, you know what? This is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you. In the story, side by side, you wish you could scream into the one story of the guy below and say, do you see what he's doing for you? He's being condemned for you. He's taking your condemnation. You get to go free. He will give his life for you. That's what's happening in the story. That's what Mark wants you to see. Jesus doesn't just die unjustly. He dies substitutionally. He's dying in Peter's place. And that's what Peter just couldn't get. He, he was so self-confident. And this will kill you, by the way. If you're just so confident that God just thinks the world of you. If you're just so confident that when you get to the other side, God's not going to be able to help himself but let you in. You were so nice. And you weren't like so-and-so. That's a mistake. That's kind of the self-confidence Peter had. But it's not how God saw him, and it's not who he really was. And even at his worst, Jesus is taking his condemnation. And if you don't see that, you'll never be anything more than just a curious follower of Jesus. You'll never be nothing, you'll never be anything more than curious. You'll follow at a safe different distance. You'll keep yourself out of harm's ways. If it's going to hurt me, I'm not going to do it. He didn't understand Jesus' suffering. But what did Jesus say? I don't know if I have this. I don't know if I have 834 up there. Let me see. No, I don't think I do. All right, I don't have that text up there, but 838 says, If anyone wants to become a follower, become my follower, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Do you see, this? you see the significance of Christology and discipleship? Jesus is suffering on behalf of Peter. If Peter will see that, he'd be willing to suffer too. He'd be willing to take that too, but Peter's not seeing that yet. He's not seeing it. So as a result, he has no courage. He has no courage whatsoever when it comes to who Jesus is publicly. 
And you know what? You'll never really be a true follower. Peter's not in a courtroom. Jesus is. So what does that say? Well, I think Edwards does a nice job of saying that means you and I are on trial every day in our everyday lives. Peter is the guy, you know, when we're standing with buddies in the courtyard, when we're at the game, when we're at work, when we're at school, wherever we are, there's people around us and we're by a fire and we're doing this or we're doing that. What kind of a witness are you? What kind of a testimony are you? That's, that's it. In ordinary circumstances of life, your integrity and your, your association with Jesus is always on trial. It's always on trial. And that's, that's the picture of Peter. So the question becomes, do I show what I'm, what, I, what I'm supposed to show based on what I know about Jesus? Do I show what I'm supposed to show? In terms of my life when I'm around, when I'm in public? And then maybe more difficult, do I say what I'm supposed to say? Because there's times we're supposed to say something. We, we just, what, what we, do, do you ever say it? And then if you think about this whole dramatic story and you think about this, and the most dramatic lesson of the entire issue of discipleship comes in the context of how do you present Jesus publicly. That will say more about you than anything you, you think about yourself. Peter was so self-confident he was spiritual. Put him in a public setting, and he could not hold his own, and it said more about his heart than anything else. That would be a great test for us this morning. Now, as you're thinking about that, let's talk about it for a minute. Being a witness is a very critical part of discipleship. That's what we're learning here today. Who I am in, fr who I am in front of others absolutely matters. It's not just who I am privately. Of course, that lesson here is being learned very, very, in a very painful, embarrassing moment for Peter. Because our lives publicly actually equal a denial because, we, because our public lives might be on par with Peter's denial in this text because we so disassociate with Jesus by the way we live and the way we talk. When you're around people who don't know Jesus, are you so disassociated with Jesus in those moments that your life could actually look like a denial of him? You say, I'd never do what Peter did. No, oh, be careful. You might be doing it because you never speak up. People don't know. People don't see. And you don't show it. And when you get the chance and it does come up, you leave the fire and you head for the gate. Then you're Peter. I'm Peter when I do that. Literally, I, I guess I'm sort of weird to say that. Because it just shows I'm not, I, I don't want to take any flack for Jesus. 
And what happens is, and see, here's the thing about discipleship that you got to understand about Christology. Our survival is still the ultimate point of reference in the world. If that's the case, then, you, then you've missed what Jesus is saying, because he said pick up a cross. That means you are no longer the sort of the center of your reality. If your survival and your name and your and, and approval is all that matters to you, then you're going to be, it's going to be really tough to be a great witness. And that's what Peter is seeing. That's what we're seeing in Peter. And until we learn this, by the way, until you learn that, no part of Christianity can you be successful at, let alone witnessing. Although witnessing today, we're all being very, very much tested. We're all in our, sort of our own trial here. Peter hasn't died to himself because he doesn't, he doesn't fully understand that what Jesus has done for him. And so his Christology is too low for him to be the disciple that he ought to be, especially in public. And what this text is telling us is, if you're a disciple, then you must have a public discipleship. You can't have a private one. It's just about me and God. You can't do that. That's not an option. So, how does this relate to our witnessing? Let me give you just a couple things that I was thinking about this week. Many of our lives, many of us, uh, it's very possible that we, we have lives lived in hiding and blending in to the, to the degree that uh, in most of our everyday surroundings, and we are essentially in public non-disciples. In public, do you follow Jesus at a distance? You blend in so well that no one could identify you as a follower of Christ by the light of the fire. Well, that would be a problem. That would say that you don't really understand what Jesus did for you. That's a powerful You're just one of those shadowy figures. See, Mark is saying, you have to be what you claim to be in public if you're going to follow Jesus. That's what he's saying. So who we are in front of others says a lot. Do you remember in chapter 13, when Jesus in chapter 13 is describing his second coming, and who's going to be ready when he comes? Do you remember what he says? In chapter 13, he says, you will be witnesses. You'll be carried before counselors and kings, and I expect you to preach the gospel, he says in chapter 13. And, and you might get arrested. And believe it or not, here we are in a trial setting. Jesus says you might get arrested and put on trial. By the way, that's what's going to happen to me. If you're a disciple, it might happen to you. There may be a cost in it. And then Jesus goes so far as to say, you might even lose your family because they'll testify against you. That's what he says in chapter 13. Then he goes on to say, and by the way, everyone will hate you because they hate me. And you're like, oh, I can't be hated. I don't like to be hated by anyone. I like to be liked. And that's the thing. That's what Jesus is saying. If you like being liked more than me, then you don't understand what I'm doing for you, and you'll never be a great witness. 
if you, you're missing the point. You're just missing the whole point. And that's why in chapter 8, when, when Peter confesses and then Jesus says, well, I'm going to suffer, Peter tries to rebuke him. Jesus says in chapter 8 and verse 38, look at this. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory. Jesus is making it crystal clear here. You've got to have a public faith. You can't be just a private disciple. Then you don't understand who Jesus is and what he did for you. Peter, I know that when you're alone with me, you're so confident in me. But when we're apart and you're by yourself and you're with others, you don't even care about me. Is that who you are? Because Jesus would say that's a problem. And so as I tried to just make this simple and practical here, and I only have five minutes, and that's all I'll take, and this is all it's going to take. Here's the couple things that came to my mind from a practical standpoint. What is it that I value so much that when I'm in public, I will not risk anyone identifying me as a Christ follower because something matters to you. It's the same way it is in anything. If, if, if you're not a giver, it's because you value money. Right? If you just, just go see why you don't follow Jesus in a setting, you'll see something else you value. You just don't value it. So there's got to be something you value more than being identified as a Christian. Making a wave. Taking flack. Something's got to matter to you. And it could be, it could be the opinion of others. Maybe, maybe for us, we value that Peter's running. He, he, he doesn't want anyone to think of him this way. Maybe that's how we are. And by the way, I think it's a great question. It was a hard one for me. It's been a while since it's happened to me. It's been, it's been a long time since it's happened to me, maybe too long. So I want to make you, sure you know that I'm not yelling at you. I know how hard this is, and I've, I've pretty much blown it here too. So, but When was the last time you took any flack for knowing Jesus? I hated that question. doesn't mean in our culture, because in our culture, you don't always have to take flack to identify with Jesus. There's a lot of other cultures you couldn't get away with it. In our culture, you might take some, take some flack. Have you, had, have you had any? It's a great question, I think, for all of us to ask. I'm not sure I can answer that well for myself, well enough. Uh, we had a guy here recently on our men's breakfast, Phil Kane, did a talk, first talk on pornography, and we considered the possibility that for men who weren't here, that it was a worthy talk, and we were going to put it online. 
Well, we had a long conversation with him about whether or not we ought to put it online because, I mean, that's his story. His wife's involved, and it says some things about him that, you know, if you were going to hire him, you might hear that story and go, I don't know. So we had a conversation about that, and I remember standing out in the foyer with him, and I said, Phil, this thing goes online. People are going to hear a really hard story. I mean, it could... It could cost you. And he said, you know something, Pete? This is, this is Phil. This is just typical Phil. That's why I love him. He said, I just happened to be reading this week that Jesus was of no reputation. And I'm happy to have no reputation if it's just for him. And I went. <laughs> I don't know. Is he in here right now? I don't know where he is. I thought I saw him today. Where is he? <laughs> He said that. And I didn't show this. I said, oh, yeah, that's exactly what I would say, Phil. I said, that's exactly what I would say. I went, because I thought, anybody in here want to lose their reputation? Want to be known as something you're not known, that you're known for now? Would you give it up for Jesus? Would you give your reputation up for him? What other people think? Because that's really, at the end of the day, what's really at stake. And he said that, and I just, oh, golly, that's so great. What is, it you're, what is it you value so much? Is it your reputation? Is it the approval of others? I don't know. The other thing that came to my mind is maybe it's, listen, by the way, if you don't live it, don't bring it up. Don't bring up Jesus if people are going to be shocked by his name coming out of your mouth. Okay, you're killing us. We're losing because you just, you're dishonest, you, you mistreat people, you're not nice, and you, you don't show anything about Jesus, then you're going to bring him up because you heard a sermon. Be very careful about that. You'll make things worse. Okay, you got to live it. You got to show it. But then maybe there is a time, and this was a question that was really hard for me, and I asked it, and I'm going to ask it of you. Maybe there's some times I need to speak up, and I just flat haven't. How many of you have had one of those? Let me see your hands. Yeah, and I don't know what that looks like, but I want to say something to you about it. Um, um, Again, this is C.S. Lewis in God in the Dock. Can I read this to you? Listen to this. He said, as Christians, we're tempted to make unnecessary concessions to those outside the faith. Now, when I read that line this week, I just went, mm-mm-mm, too many concessions. There's a lot of concessions to make. Can I say something to you, Christians? There are times when you do need to keep your mouth shit. I did say shut. <laughs> That's for purposes of the tape. You will do the faith a whole lot better. You will do more service for God if you shut tea. All right? We all know that. But we do that way too easy and way too often, and we don't take the times we ought to. And here's what, so he goes on to say this. He says we give in too much. It's okay to be smart, to give in smartly and wisely at times. But he says we give in way too much. Now, I don't mean that we should run the risk of making a nuisance of ourselves by witnessing at improper times or in improper ways. Please don't do that. Of course. 
But then he says this, there does come a time when we must show that we disagree. And we can do that very lovingly. We can show that we're not in this camp. We're warming ourselves by this fire, but this is not ultimately who we are. We must show our Christian colors if we are to be true to Jesus Christ. We cannot remain silent or concede everything away. Do you concede everything to the dark side? Do you let them win every battle? That's what I heard when he said that. That's such a great word. You know, I hesitate to do this because I don't want you in any way to feel like I feel in any way like I'm better at this than you because I'm not. It's just an illustration. Just about four weeks ago, it was a Saturday morning and we go to CrossFit in the morning and Anthony and my, my son and I go to this CrossFit and we have a great Saturday morning. It's open gym and anybody can go on a Saturday. There was a bunch of people there and we, were, we, were, we did a workout and when it was over, we were all going home and Cody tapped me on the shoulder, the one who owns it, and he says, look, I got 20 new candidates who've signed up to look into CrossFit coming in just a few minutes. I wonder if you would tell them your story of CrossFit. Just five minutes. Just encourage them. It's their first time. And for anyone thinking about that, it's very intimidating. So he said, just, you're an old guy. You do it. <laughs> tell them your story. So I, I waited for, we've met these 20 people in there, all shapes, sizes, and colors, interested in getting, interested in getting involved. And he calls me up to the front, and I start talking, and right while I'm just sitting there, it dawns on me. Because I got to tell you, I don't do it a lot, but if you want to talk about CrossFit, it's something I love to talk about, because it's something I love to do. I'm not great at it. Don't get the wrong impression. I'm not at all. But I love it. And so when I got up there, I said, I want you guys to know, I'm happy to talk to you about CrossFit because I love it. I said, just so you know, I love to talk about Jesus too. So if you want to talk about that ever, I'm really in on either one of those. Everybody laughed. But it was just a way for me to get his name out there. And it wasn't confrontational. It wasn't mean. It wasn't anything. It was just get his name out there. Sometimes you speak up, and it doesn't mean that I was correcting a wrong or giving my position. Hey, sometimes you got to wait till you're asked. But sometimes you can put his name out there in a context, and no one was expecting it, and it might be just right. Just get it out there, because it might open doors. I don't know what doors it's going to open. All right. Um, well, I think everybody knows what happens in this story. What happens? The cock crows that last time. Jesus must have been brought downstairs, and he must have been brought through that courtyard that Peter was in. Because remember what Luke tells us. When, that, when, the, when the rooster crows that last time, Jesus turns and looks directly at Peter. He looks directly at Peter. Now, the beautiful thing about this story is the whole time Mark's presenting it is we're supposed to be seeing Jesus. 
But when the, when the rooster crows, Jesus sees Peter. He looks at Peter. It's a great, I don't even have words for what that means, but he breaks down. And no one knows really what the word breakdown means. Some people think he might have beat himself. It's, it's Peter reconnecting to the suffering of Jesus. I'm internally reconnecting. I finally see Jesus suffering for me, like he said. And because I see his suffering, what did Peter go on to do? Peter went on to be the great leader of just as Jesus predicted, Peter, you're going to deny me, but you'll turn back, and when you do, you're going to strengthen others. You know what Peter wrote about in the first book that he wrote? Suffering. That was his theme. I was going to read to you every verse. That's what I was going to do at the end, but I went way too long on everything else. Read First Peter. You've got to hear one, and I'll be done. Maybe two. Here's what Peter says. For to this you were called, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. When he was maligned, he didn't answer back. When he suffered, he threatened no retaliation. He committed himself to God. I love these. Rejoice in the degree that you have shared in the sufferings of Jesus. If you lose something because you say his name in public, Peter says, rejoice in that you have shared in those sufferings. See, that's what a disciple does. When you see Jesus through the suffering and, and what he is doing for you, it's become so much more natural to give up for him, even when it comes to your public faith. And if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed. Glorify God, he says. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will restore you, confirm you, strengthen you, and establish you. Because Peter reconnected right there in that moment with Jesus' sufferings. And maybe today, maybe today, if, if nothing else happens, you reconnect with Jesus' suffering for you. And if you do that, I promise, you'll be a little more on your toes when that little gal or that little guy wanders up to the fire you're standing at and wants to talk about some things, you're ready. You're ready. Because you so appreciate his sufferings for you. That's the connection. Christology and discipleship. Public faith matters. Father, thank you for this word. You're such a good word for us today. It's such a good way to check our hearts. And Lord, reveal some idols. If there's some things in there we want more than we want to identify with you, we've, we've got some work to do. And may we reconnect with your suffering today. In Jesus' name, amen.